Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we're going to look at the Word of God. <clears throat> we're grateful we could come together here. And uh, just help me to, to preach this in a manner that pleases you, uh, that you might get me out of the way and fill me with your Holy Spirit, and we might see Christ. And um, Lord, for man to lift up Jesus Christ, it doesn't even sound reasonable, uh, the proposition, we're, we're unable. So we ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do and anoint your word with your power and exalt Christ and magnify him in our hearts and minds and eyes. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning on the seven steps of Christ's humility and then the seven steps of Christ's exaltation. And then, if we have time this morning, and we may not, we may have to finish this up next Sunday morning, his sevenfold glory. For this, I'd like for you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, you know, people talk about when writing a book the difference between plagiarism and research. There's probably a fine line there. But the first part, thank you. Thank you, honey. The uh, first part of this message, Brother Walski had brought a devotion to us uh, staff members on Tuesday morning, not too long ago, and I, and I really liked the outline, so I, I called him the other day, and I, I wanted to ask him if, if, I, if I could preach that outline before he applied for a patent on it. And he said that was all right, and so I appreciate it. Brother, Brother Walski, we've been friends for almost 50 years. That's hard to believe. Since I'm only 39 years old, how could, how could that possibly be? But uh, I want to give credit where credit is due, and someone once said all messages are stolen messages anyways. But I want us to take a look at Philippians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Bible says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Wouldn't, I'm not going to preach on this part of it this morning, but wouldn't any family any church, any workplace, be happier for following these guidelines just in these first two verses. And we're going to see where Paul's going here. He's, he's going to take us to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Well, that would eliminate most of what's on the news, wouldn't it? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Better than themselves. You know, you might look at someone else and you might know that you could do certain things better than them, but there are certain things they can do better than you, no matter who you're talking about. 
and let each esteem other better than themselves. By the way, do you know that that's the only thing the Bible says about self-esteem? To hear Christian psychologists and modern preachers so-called talk about it, you'd, th you'd think all this self-love and self-worth and self-hyphenated terminology was all throughout the New Testament. That's the only thing that God has to say to us about self-esteem. He says, don't. <laughs> Esteem others better than yourselves. And by the way, God doesn't teach high self-esteem. He doesn't teach low self-esteem. He teaches no self-esteem. We're better off when we're not thinking about ourselves. And we're looking to be a blessing to others. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, these are Christ's seven steps to humility, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Now, starting in verse 9, we see his seven steps to exaltation. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that if we exalt ourselves, we'll be abased. If we abase ourselves, we'll be exalted. We find out in James that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In this portion of Scripture, we're going to see Jesus in the greatest act of humility. In all of history. And then think for a moment and compare it to Satan's greatest act of pride. In Isaiah 14 when he decided that he would make himself equal with God. Imagine that arrogance. I heard of a heart, a heavy metal rock singer who named himself Dio which I guess is Italian for God. Is that correct? Well, you're on dangerous ground there, aren't you? So we're going to look this morning at Christ's sevenfold humility and then his sevenfold exaltation. If you look at verse 7, the first thing is he made himself of no reputation. Now, notice he, he did this on his own. He made himself. Of no reputation. This was voluntary. He didn't have to do it. But he made himself of no reputation. And as the creator of the universe, he has the greatest reputation 
Think of what constitutes the greatest reputation in any area of life at any point in history. And I defy you to come up with someone of greater reputation than the one who created it all. And this same one, who by the way, the devil slanders him with evolution, doesn't he? Evolution is slandering the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the book of Colossians, created all things. But the one with the greatest reputation made himself of no reputation. And then we see further in verse 7 that he took upon him the form of a servant. <clears throat> the master is now the slave. The master is now the slave. And, and notice again, this is, this is his doing. He made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. I came to the realization not too long ago that I have read most of the Christian classics, at least to my knowledge. Things like Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, things of that nature. And I realized that I hadn't read many of the secular classics. So I, I decided to start out with Uncle Tom's Cabin. Borrowed it, borrowed it from my daughter and read it through, and I, I would recommend it to anybody. It's about slavery. In fact, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, his estimation of it was that it was the book that started the Civil War. And when he met uh, uh, Beecher, uh, the little gal that wrote it, he said, so you're the little lady that started this war. And the book was wildly popular in America and even in, in Europe and especially in England. And uh, it's, it's fictional, but it's based on actual characters that she knew and met and experienced, slave owners, uh, slaves themselves, and the whole culture of slavery does a masterful job of helping you understand uh, so many of the ins and outs of all of that. But when I, when, I, when I looked at that, I, I really had to say to myself, I'm not sure which it was worse to be, a slave or a slave owner. But the hero of the story is this Uncle Tom, this very simple slave, but a man who had a, a deep devotion to the Lord and God's word so far as he could read it. And for most of his life, he depended on others to read the word of God to him, but he would, he would memorize it. And I won't ruin the book for you, but uh, his act of humility at the end of the book for the sake of his, his friends was, was a thing that really emulates the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here, he, he takes upon himself a form of a servant, I've often, I've often thought it's, it's not really a true test of what we're all about when we get advanced. It's a true test of what we're all about 
when it seems when it seems at least that our status is being diminished. But I use the word seems because I think of what David said in Psalm 4 when he said, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. And sometimes when we're going down, we don't realize we're really going up. And sometimes when we're pushing ourselves up, we don't really realize we're going down. And so he took upon himself the form of a servant. Notice in verse 7, the third step of humility. And, and the Bible says here, and was made in the likeness of men. For this, I say, deity disguised. The likeness of men. How many during his earthly life realized when they looked at him, those that met him, those that may have touched him, those that walked with him, the twelve, how many of them really fully understood that they were looking at God? That they were looking at God? You, pe- you hear people remark from time to time, and some even make claims that God spoke to me, or someone claims that they saw God. But here he is. He is in the likeness of men. But what do we really have? We have deity disguised as man. And then the fourth step, if you look at verse 8, the Bible tells us in verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, in fashion as a man. And notice that phrase, being found. You ever been in a situation where you hope nobody saw you? Huh? You did something or something happened to you that first thing you do when it's over with, you look around, did anybody see that? Or, or you're, you're working, guys, and you slip with the hammer and you hit your thumb and you yell, praise the Lord. But you really didn't yell, praise the Lord. You said something else. Very different from praise the Lord. And you look around. Did anybody hear that? Notice the Bible says in verse 8, being found, he, was, he allowed himself to be found in fashion as a man. He allowed his creation to see the creator in his own self-humiliation. I often think of him in the garden when his disciples couldn't pray with him for an hour. You know, he marveled, or if he didn't marvel, at least he was disappointed in that because he brought it up. He says, what could you not watch for one hour? I think of when the mob came to take him. I I think of this rabble and some of the seedy characters. And he allowed himself to be taken. I think of his mock trial. And he's standing there being found in fashion as a man. 
and, and, men, and men like Pilate that said, don't you know I have power to release thee or to keep thee? I have power to crucify you. And I think of this humiliation as he allowed himself to be found in fashion as a man. As they scourged him, as they tortured him, as they whipped him, as they mocked him. And he went to the cross, being found in fashion as a man. What do we hear when we hear this phrase, as a man? We hear of limitations. We see God manifest in the flesh, laying down the privileges of deity that he might go to the cross for us. That's why sometimes in the gospel when you see things about Christ or hear him say things that seem to contradict the fact that he is deity, keep in mind that he laid aside the privileges of deity during his earthly life. Many of them. One point he said, the Father is greater than I. And the Jehovah Witnesses mistakenly have a big God and a little God as a result of that phrase, but that's not what's going on. He's being found in fashion as a man. The fifth step is that he humbled himself. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And, and he humbled himself. And in doing so, he made himself our example. Our example. Someone once says, you will never be over that which God put under you until you get under that which God has put over you. Brother John Paisley, who will be with us uh, here in a week and a half during the meeting, he wrote the best thing I've ever seen on this. He wrote a book on the second man. Brother Paisley was an, has been an assistant as many years in the ministry as he's been a senior pastor, and he wrote a book on, on the second man, and the whole book is on the Lord Jesus Christ because he says, and rightly so, that Jesus is the ultimate second man. He came not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. I think it's a profound thought, but he humbled himself, and he made us, he made himself our our example. You know, anytime we want to be proud, we need to realize we're, we're violating his impeccable example to us and emulating Satan's example. Then notice number six, he became obedient. He became obedient unto death. Verse eight. Obedient unto death. Why did he do that? To destroy death. He went to the grave for three days and three nights. And when death took the Lord Jesus Christ, what death didn't know was that in three days and three nights, death would find out that death had committed suicide. Because after three days and three nights, Christ rose from the dead. Complete obedience. 
Complete obedience unto death. A lot of times we look at something when we're asked to do it in obedience to the Lord and we might take inventory, we might count the cost, and we might calculate how far we may have to go with this. And I wonder if there have been any times in our lives, not unlike Christ, where we said, this could kill me. Jesus knew that his obedience would kill him, and yet he obeyed. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 5, one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible, in my thinking. And I've heard this verse explained many times, many ways, and, and, and uh, explained very well, and yet I still don't think that it it does it any real justice. Hebrews 5 and, and verse, verse 8, speaking of Christ. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Yet learned he obedience. That, 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 just, that just blows my mind. Christ having to learn anything. The fact he learned it, but that's part of this humility. He subjected himself to that process. Yet learned he obedience by what? The things which he suffered. Look at chapter 2 in the same Hebrews and look at verse 10. The Bible says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. The idea there is, is complete, perfect through sufferings. So he was obedient unto death. And why? That he might destroy death. And then lastly, if we look at the seventh, the seventh step of humility, the Bible says in verse 8, even the death of the cross. And when I see that phrase right there, I see the devil throwing his worst at him. I see Jesus taking on the devil on the devil's turf. I see Jesus as the visiting team taking on the home team in his own crib, if you will. Even the death of the cross. Everything I've read about crucifixion, the Roman government meant crucifixion to intimidate. To strike fear in the hearts of everyone at the very thought of ever having to go through that process. And Jesus essentially said to the devil, bring it on. Give me your best shot. And he defeated the devil. The Bible says the devil is as a roaring lion. Doesn't say he's a roaring lion. He says as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but he took on one foe too many this time. And the lion of the tribe of Judah defeated him thoroughly. Even the death of the cross. But now let's look at his seven steps 
to exaltation because we look at verse 9 and he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. His first step of humility was that he made himself of no reputation. His first step of exaltation is that God highly exalted him. Sometimes when somebody we respect or admire or perhaps in a position of power compliments us, it can be very flattering. But this is God exalting Jesus Christ. And when God says you're something else, you're something else. Man can just be flattering you. Man can be judging on an irrelevant scale, which oftentimes happens. I'm almost amused if it wasn't so sad how a lot of times athletes who are typically very one-dimensional in life get exalted. And celebrities that are often zero-dimensional in life get exalted. An irrelevant scale. But boy, when God says, you're something, you're something. And the Bible says here in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and then notice, given him a name which is above Every name. Now, certain names evoke, at the very least, great recognition. For instance, in sports. Most people, if they hear the name Michael Jordan, they understand. Great basketball player, Chicago Bulls and all that. Uh, Tom Brady, quarterback. New England Patriots, Super Bowls. In politics, uh, maybe Ronald Reagan or, or Dwight Eisenhower. In history, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and we could go on and on. But all of these names are subservient to this name. Given him a name which is above every name. And so in this, his second step of exaltation stands in contrast with his second step of humility that he voluntarily became a slave. Now he's got a name that's above every name. And then notice the third thing, that the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow. Every knee. Final victory. All are at his footstool. Deity disguised is now deity revealed. And notice, in, notice the next two steps are found also in verse 10. Where it says of things in heaven and things in earth. Now, if you want to make that a restored heaven and earth then it's all the right people and all the right angels. And so we'll go with that. There's no value in the wicked clapping their hands for us. If we seek the world's approval and their, 
their applause. Remember something, as they're clapping, the blood of Jesus Christ is all over those hands. Their hatred of your Bible, their hatred of your God, their hatred of what is right. But this isn't the case in heaven and in earth. A universe made right, the right ones praising. All this in contrast to when his creation was allowed to see his humiliation. Now, now at the name of Jesus, every knee is bowing of things in heaven and things in earth. And then notice, and things under the earth, the netherworld. Satan must relent. Satan must give up. Satan must surrender. Notice how many times in the Psalms David prays those precatory prayers against his enemies. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes as a lamb and allows himself to be slaughtered. But now he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's described for us in Revelation chapter 1, the glorified Savior. And things under the earth. On September 2nd, 1945, in Tokyo Bay, aboard the USS Missouri, the Japanese delegation sat across from General MacArthur with, with, with Wainwright standing right behind him, still emaciated and skinny from his, his years in Japanese prisons. And the leader of that Japanese delegation signed the instrument of surrender. I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm looking forward to the day when the devil has to bow both knees when the devil has to confess with his tongue. Look at verse 11. In verse 10, God says, well, all right, we'll take care of the body language. Get down on your knees so there's no question. And then he says, all right, confess with your tongue. And the devil will have to say that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Won't that be something? Man, I want to be there. The longer I go, the older I get, the more I see, the more I hate the devil. And the Bible says in verse 11, every tongue, every tongue. The knees will bow, verse 10. The tongues will confess. And of course, we as believers will do so joyfully as we do now. And you know, I often think that so much of our humanity and the old man is, it, 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 it so limits us in our worship. But man, when we get to heaven and we get our, our glorified resurrection bodies like we talked about last week and, and we are just like Christ in so many ways that we aren't now, that worship will just flow. 
And as it should be now, it will be then that the most wonderful thing that we can do, and we'll be all on board with it, is to praise him. We'll just love praising him. All of self will be out of the way. All of pride will be out of the way. All of the things of the old nature that, that, that skew and, and, and create interference with worship of God will be gone. And every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt. And all that the devil did to Christ on the cross will be, will be a distant memory to this great event. How wonderful. How wonderful. Christian, can I challenge you this morning? What about you and me? You know, this is so counterintuitive to us. God says, if you want to go up, go down. God says, if you want to get, then give. God says, if you want to win, then lose. And the Lord Jesus Christ, seven acts of humility, and then seven steps of exaltation. Let's close by taking our Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now watch this. That he may exalt you in due time. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father, who for the joy that was set before him in due time, in due time. Folks, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. And it will happen in due time, in due time, if we obey him, if we walk with him, and we're willing to humble ourselves. The other will come later. And you know what? More often than not, not in this life, amen? I think we make a great mistake as Christians when we look for the rewards in the here and now. Certainly there's many blessings to walking with God. But I'll tell you what, when I look back at my life before I trusted Christ, it sure beats reaping all that stuff that I had sown, amen? But we don't get all the rewards now, folks. In due time. In due time. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We, we thank you for a Savior who humbled himself and did so for our, our sake, Lord. 
did so in our behalf. Did so that he might be the mediator to bring us to you and to bring you to us. And for that, we're grateful this morning. Lord, may our hearts and minds be filled with your praise, your adoration, and your worship. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 57. Number 57, Be Thou Exalted. Be Thou Exalted Forever and ever God of eternity The Ancient of Days Wondrous in wisdom Majestic in glory Perfect in holiness And worthy of praise Be Thou Exalted by seraphs and angels be thou exalted with harp and with song saints in their anthems of rapture adore thee thine be the glory forever amen be thou exalted O son of the Brother Sam Gipp, would you come on up here and close us in a word of prayer, please? Thank you. Father, it's good to be in church. Good to be saved. And uh, Father, thank you for what the pastor fed us with this morning. Uh, God, it's just a good place to be. So we thank you for that. God bless everybody that came. Somebody didn't feel good. Somebody was tired. Whatever the case, they decided to come to church anyway. Bless every person, Father, that has come. God, that we would be blessed and edified that we would then go out and live to your glory. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.